Good morning, Bethel. Second Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 24. This is the word of the Lord. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put it into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord." With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that, in be, that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man." And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. So you can turn back to uh, 2 Corinthians 8. We are going through a series called Cruciform Ministry uh, through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we find ourselves this week in chapter 8. We'll look at chapter 9 next week. Uh, both of these chapters kind of hang together. The themes are, are woven together pretty closely, but uh, we'll take one chapter at a time here. As you're turning there, I've got some questions for you. 
So do you ever look around at other people and maybe you look at their job compared to your job, their schedule compared to your schedule? They've got a better schedule, more flexibility, maybe more, more vacation, you know, whatever. Maybe you look at those same people or other people and you feel like, ah, they've got all these talents and gifts and then you think about how limited your talents and gifts are and maybe you start to feel a little jealous. Maybe you just feel kind of pathetic and worthless. I mean, these other people seem to have so many successes and wins and you don't seem to be winning anywhere with anything, ever. You just feel like a big loser. Do you ever notice the relational richness in other people's lives? And maybe, you know, somebody else seems to have this great marriage and yours is not so great. Maybe it's kind of poor. Maybe it's that they have kids and you don't. Or maybe it's that their kids seem really great and yours are like totally out of control. Or... So many friends, so many good ones, and you feel kind of lonely and isolated. So relational richness, relational poverty. You know, there's lots of other valuable commodities that people have and don't have, health and wellness. You know, maybe you see these people that have such vitality and your poor body seems to acquire a new ache or limitation each month or week. Or just your body in general and your looks, you know, struggling regularly with feeling like you got the short end of the stick. So I could go on, but I wonder what richness you often notice around you and what lack or poverty you often struggle with internally. So that was a lot of different questions, but let's boil it all down to this question. Do you believe that God is stingy? Let me ask it a little bit more directly. Do you feel like he's been stingy with you? What do you think are some of the effects of that belief or that feeling? Well, our passage this morning here in 2 Corinthians 8 is about the generosity of God and what our belief in his generosity can do. In fact, we have an illustration of what the grace of God can do, his generosity, right off the bat in verses one to five. So there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful, or you'll see the, the slides, the points up on the screen here behind me. So first point, what the grace of God can do, chapter eight, verses one to five. <coughs> so Paul writes, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
couple things to notice. Macedonia, um, like Philippi, the Philippian church was inside that region, um, Thessalonica as well. So anyway, a few different churches that Paul would have planted or had a, a part in um, in the book of Acts are being represented here in that region. Also, just notice in verse 2 that their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That word for generosity can actually be translated simplicity or sincerity or singleness. Okay? Okay, what, is that? what does that mean? Well, it means that what overflowed was this wealth of sincere, no-strings-attached dynamic with their giving. So there was no reservation. There was no second-guessing, no hesitant calculation with this giving. They were able to be free and liberal and, and just wholehearted and sincere in their giving. So there's a lot there in that little word, generosity. That's what overflowed is this sincere, wholehearted generosity. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. So beyond what could have been expected of them, kind of like the widow's might. She gave all she had to live on, like way above and beyond. They did it of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor. That's the same word for grace. The grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So it's kind of unexpected to Paul because it was beautiful. They gave themselves first to the Lord, as they ought to, wholeheartedly committed to Him. Also, they were committed to Paul, which was a really good thing for the Corinthians to see, right? Because if you've been tracking along with us, the reason he had to write this letter is because there was kind of a breach in their relationship, and they had listened to some people who were undermining Paul's ministry and you know, kind of saying, what are you following him for? And so the Macedonians are an example in more than just the fact that they were generous givers. They also supported Paul. Remember how Paul thanks the Philippians at the end of the book of Philippians chapter 4 for their generosity toward him? So they gave themselves to the Lord, they gave themselves to Paul, and they begged for the opportunity to give to the relief of the saints in Judea, which was, again, all this is unexpected. So they're an example um, to the Corinthians, and Paul wants to kind of stir up the Corinthians by their example, okay? Because they really put their money where their mouth was. So look back at verse 1 and just think about how crazy this equation is. Severe affliction plus extreme poverty, okay? Plug yourself into that. What would, what would be on the equal side? If, if for you, in your life and circumstances, severe affliction, what was added to that was extreme poverty, what would you come up with? What would overflow in your life, my life, in that equation? Extreme grumbling? Intense anxiety? Crippling fear? Like, that'd probably be my first thought, one of those three, or maybe all the above. Well, there was one more factor in this equation. Severe affliction plus abundance of joy. 
well, where in the world did that come from? Plus, extreme poverty equals overflowing wealth of generosity. So this abundant joy is the key. It's this gospel joy. It's joy in the Lord. Where in the world does that come? It comes from the grace of God, the grace of God in their lives. It's gospel joy, joy in the Lord joy, joy that comes from Jesus joy, grace of God joy. And this is what the grace of God can do. In fact, it's the whole point of these first five verses is that the proof that grace has been given to the churches in Macedonia is the way that they gave. So Paul is about to call the Corinthians to prove that they know this grace too, that they really have repented, and now he's calling them to put their money where their mouth is as well. Okay, But the main thing that we need to see in this section is that giving is about the grace of God. It's an evidence of the grace of God. And the grace of God can do amazing things in people, like crazy things, like what happened with these Macedonians. So generous giving does not come from having more or having a lot or even having enough, whatever that is. Generous giving comes from knowing the grace of God through Christ. That's where it comes from. So there was a study done um, several years ago before the housing bubble burst that compared charitable giving percentages, and they found that the average percentage given by, in this survey, evangelical Christians was 2.5%. Okay, so let's say maybe this was around 2000. Okay, housing bubble burst in 2007, so somewhere early 2000s. Do you know what the giving percentage for all Americans, not Christians, but all Americans was during the Great Depression. It was 3.2% or 3.3%. So it was actually higher during the Great Depression, all Americans, than it was for Christians in the midst of economic prosperity. Or another study. After the housing bubble burst in 07 and the Great Recession began, there was an interesting trend. So there's a study done by the Chronicle of Philanthropy, which looked at IRS data showing charitable deductions in 2006 and 2012. So before the bubble, after the bubble, during the recession. The study found that Americans who earned $200,000 a year or more cut the share of income they gave to charity by 4.6%. While Americans earning less than 100000 a year gave 4.5% more of their income to charity after the bubble burst. And then listen to this. Those with incomes of 25000 or less saw the biggest increase. The share of their income that went to charity rose almost 17%. Low-income Americans primarily give to religious organizations. And this was reported by NPR. So it's not like... <laughs> anyway... So the point is that generosity is not a result of or a reflex of abundance. Have you ever been, I mean, how many have you been to another country, maybe a third world country or a less developed country, and some very poor Christians, what'd they do? They welcomed you in and almost shamed you. It was almost embarrassing how generous they were with their hospitality and care for you. They gave you their best I know I've had that happen. I know many of you here have had that happen. It can be really humbling. 
kind of shames our stinginess and our selfishness. But once again, we see that generosity is not a function of wealth. It's a function of grace. Biblical giving is a work of grace. Only grace can catalyze it. Only grace can sustain it. Only grace can explain it. So what else could account for, for instance, the joyful, sacrificial giving of those Macedonians begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints? I mean, isn't that kind of generosity beautiful? This isn't me like, hey, come on, you know, pay my salary. This isn't self-serving. This is all of us. Like, I'm called to live this. We all are. This is beautiful. This kind of generosity is beautiful. And it gets worked out in a hundred different ways. So I'm not going to be uncomfortable talking about this, you know, because this is the Bible and it's addressing all of us. Okay? God's word to all of us. So, beautiful thing this generous giving, it's excellent. So don't you want to excel in the grace of giving like that? That's actually where Paul goes next, to exhorting the Corinthians and us to excel in the grace of giving. So point number two, um, look at verse six. So accordingly, we urge Titus, as he had started, so he should complete, complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all earnestness, and, isn't this beautiful, and in our love for you. I mean, Paul has just been loving on these people, even though they were punching him in, you know, punch him in the face when he comes, just rebelling against him and undermining him, and all he's done is love them. And so he says, just as you excel in everything, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So, Background, there was a famine that hit hard during the reign of Emperor Claudius. And the believers, the, the Jewish Christians in Judea, were suffering severely. So Paul was really concerned about those Judean Christians. And as he was going around planting churches, he actually would collect money from those Gentile churches to take back to bless the poor Jerusalem Judean saints. Okay? So he actually saw it not just as a meeting need sort of thing, which it was that, and that's a good thing, good enough reason to do it, but it was also this beautiful opportunity when there had been such Jew-Gentile strife and division. It's an opportunity for the unity of Jews and Gentiles in Christ to be demonstrated in such a tangible, beautiful way. So these Gentile Christians are expressing love to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, Judea, when they receive this gift. So there's this love and unity that's being catalyzed, encouraged, and demonstrated. He had actually encouraged them to do this back in his first letter. So flip back to 1 Corinthians 16. You'll see that he actually started this whole thing back there. First Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians 16.1, while you're turning there, what I meant by that as far as like the whole money thing, you know, pastors can feel awkward because it's like, well, this is how I put food on the table, whatever. What I'm saying is not self-serving. This is all of us before God receiving grace so that we are reflecting him in the way that we give. 
me included. So anyway, 1 Corinthians 16, 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so he was doing it with the Galatian church as well, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And I'll go if it seems advisable. Okay? So that was the original request. And then remember, there was all this drama that happened in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They had kind of rebelled against him. They were following these false apostles. And it actually seems like those false apostles were kind of taking advantage of the Corinthians financially. Um, Paul hadn't taken any money from them, and then these false apostles are taking advantage of them. We'll get to that later in chapter 11. He had withdrawn from them and written this tearful, strong letter calling them to repentance, and the church, by and large, had repented. We looked at it last week. So look at chapter 7, 2 Corinthians 7. It's just one page back from where we are this morning here in chapter 8, or actually same page if you're using the Pew Bible. Look at verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And so, in the flow of the thought of the book, here's what happens. They've repented, and now he's calling them to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance by finishing what they promised long ago or a while ago to give this gift to the Jerusalem church. So he's calling them to put their money where their mouth is, and that very act is going to be proof of their repentance. It's going to be fruit of their faith. So verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So you see how Paul is shepherding them here? He doesn't command them in a heavy-handed way. He wants this giving to well up from within. He wants them to want to give. God loves a cheerful giver. We'll see that next week in chapter 9. But he does not call them to put, um, I'm sorry, he does call them to put their money where their mouth is. He wants them to give proof of their love. He says the same thing a couple more times in this chapter. Look down at verse 11, chapter 8. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So in other words, don't just leave it at intentions, good desires. Follow through with it. And then the last verse in this chapter, verse 24, you see it down there. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So giving is an act of grace, one that we should excel at. So let's just make it personal, all of us looking in. If you were to look at your checking account statement, is it evidence that this grace is powerfully operative in your life? So our money follows our heart, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also actually works both ways. So perhaps God wants you to do a review of where your money is going. Like really practically, maybe it's this afternoon, maybe it's this week sometime. 
If it's this afternoon, just make sure it's before or after the prayer walk, right? Okay. So if we're really people who are seeking first the kingdom, and, and I'm speaking to believers, if you're here and you're not sure what you believe or you're still wrestling with all this, we don't want your money. <laughs> this is for people that trust Jesus, following him, and that's the first and most important thing. But if, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're trusting him, if you're seeking first the kingdom, then it will show in your checking account statement. I was going to say checkbook, but a lot of people probably don't even have one anymore or look at it very much, and it might not show much. Um, so the point is good intentions and good beginnings alone are not good. We've got to follow through, put our money where our mouth is. So this may be actually the time that God's tugging on you to get things in order financially. Are you in a bunch of debt? That's going to be, it's going to be hard to be a generous giver if you're in a bunch of debt. So maybe the first thing you need to do is just attack the debt. I actually have an extra copy, I mean, it's just really practical, extra copy of Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. If anybody wants it and you're going to actually use it because you want to hammer this stuff and like practically apply what we're talking about this morning, I will give it to you. I think it's like a hundred and some bucks if you want to go buy it. So I'll give it to you. Be better than collecting dust in my office. So just come see me afterwards. So is it the budget thing? Like, oh yeah, yeah, budgets are good. I should probably do that. Um, no, it's, it is good and it's freeing, not just because, you know, you should make sure you account for every penny. The point is, so that you can wisely steward what God's given you, so that you can bless and give and serve. It's so freeing. So that you can be stable and able to give and bless others. So don't leave this stuff at good intentions. I mean, this is not actually even primarily between you and your giving at Bethel. This is between you and God. So deal with him this week. Like, follow through. It would be terrible for, here's this message, Paul saying, hey, follow through on what you intended, and then you go home and forget about what we were talking about. Again, this isn't between me and you. This is between you and God. So I really encourage you to follow up with God, with whatever he's touching on. So if this feels like something you want to run from, like, ooh, God might call me to tithe on the gross rather than the net or something like that. Or I, Know that the God who is calling you to excel in the grace of giving is the same God who is super abundant in his provision of grace. <laughs> Which brings us to the third point, okay? And this is actually the most important point. So if you miss everything else, I'm not encouraging you to miss everything else, but if you do, don't miss this verse, this point, number three. We give because he first gave to us. That's everything. That's the engine for all of this stuff. So verse 9. <clears throat> for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you know that the Bible's motivation for giving is never guilt? If you find a verse, come tell me afterwards. But it's 
is not in there. It's actually always gain. It's grace and gain. We'll talk more about the gain next week. It's grace right here. So I'm not trying to lay some heavy guilt trip on you. I'm just trying to say, if we are stingy, it's actually because we are low on grace. So let's go get some more grace so that we can just have generosity well up and overflow, whether we have a little or whether we have a lot. Like, we can get in on this. This is really good stuff to be generous, just like Jesus. So, okay, this rich and poor thing, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can so easily get wowed and impressed with worldly wealth, right? Big houses and, you know, nice cars and high-end this and high-end that. But the material wealth of creation is just a tiny little plastic amusement park token of the infinite wealth of God's eternal, glorious grace. This is what Paul preached all over the place. Listen to Ephesians, a few different places. 3.8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. He says in Ephesians 1.7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. God's not stingy. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How infinitely rich we are in Christ. We have eternal life. We have peace with God. We, we have God. He's ours. We're his. We have eternal inheritance. So here's these Macedonian Christians who are materially poor, but spiritually they are loaded and they know it. The grace of the Lord Jesus was very real to them. They knew it, not just in their heads. They had experienced it in their hearts. And so they're saturated with this lavish grace of God. Like, oh, who am I that God would deal with me so kindly, so mercifully, so graciously? And this wealth of liberality bubbled up and overflowed even in the midst of affliction and deep poverty. Don't you want to know the grace of our Lord Jesus like that? I mean, do we realize the riches of his grace that are ours in Christ? So we've got to rehearse it. Do you rehearse it? If you're low on grace, we can rehearse it. Like when you really know, so 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord. So when you really know that you were spiritually bankrupt, and the debt of your sin, the debt of my sin, was infinite. More than we could ever pay. We deserve eternal debtor's prison. And Jesus comes and lives and dies in our place and says, it is finished, and the debt is totally paid in full. Past, present, future sins, everything. It's all wiped out. All the debt's gone. 
when you really know that this son, Pastor, Pastor Tyler prayed about this, I mean, just think about Philippians 2. It's just a beautiful parallel to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Jesus willingly left his riches and glory, willingly humbled himself, embraced shame and suffering and poverty and weakness and betrayal. And he became obedient even to the point of death on a cross, a shameful cross. What was the cost of the incarnation? What was the cost of the cross? And he willingly paid that cost to take our debt and to make us rich spiritually. So when you know that grace, it fills you up and it starts to overflow in gracious, gracious generosity. So listen, what's the effect of, of the cross and the forgiveness of sin and the reconciliation and being right with God and, and reconciled to our Father we're God's children. If we're God's children, then we're his heirs. He owns everything. That means all things are ours. Paul says crazy stuff like that. 1 Corinthians 3. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1. This is crazy. Like, our dad is the king and owner of the universe. So when we really know that grace, all of a sudden the need to try to save our life and comfort and security, kind of like running around all anxious like we're cosmic orphans, no. We don't have to lay up treasures for ourselves on earth. We can't take any of it with us. It's all going to fade away. This life is a vapor. We start wanting to lay up treasure in heaven, and we stop worrying about what we're going to eat and drink and wear because our Father knows what we need, and he owns it all. So we can seek first the kingdom. And we can start abounding in the gracious work, excelling in this gracious work of giving by his grace. And... Remember the title of the series, Cruciform Ministry? We become willing to follow our crucified Savior, denying ourselves in order to enrich others. Remember what Paul said just two chapters earlier, 6.10, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. So cruciform ministry, following Jesus, means giving generously. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ makes givers who give motivated by grace. They give because they want to. The desire wells up from within. It's not imposed coercively from without. God loves to create glad givers, and he's glorified in and through them. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is this inexhaustible mine filled with megatons of grace. Listen again, other Passage Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So we need to regularly look to Christ and mine the riches of his grace to fuel our faith in the present, our giving, our love in the present. So if you're low on motivation to give, if your heart is begrudging or reluctant or cold, you're low on grace. But now we know where to look. We look at Jesus. 
We look at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can go mine some gospel gold so that we get filled up with this grace and the joy that comes from it, and it'll overflow in a wealth of liberality, whether we have a little or whether we have a lot. So listen, brothers and sisters, let's not allow ourselves for a minute to think that God is stingy. He is not tight-fisted. I think the reason we think that is because we want sometimes stuff that's not real treasure. And, of course, if he doesn't give us that, we're going to feel like, you know, he's holding out. But, no, he wants to give us purest, truest, deepest, longest-lasting treasure. And then he wants us to put our money where our mouth is, But he has put his money where his mouth is before he ever asked us to. So listen to Spurgeon. This is beautiful. This might well up in a wealth of liberality just hearing this. Behold the superlative generosity of the Lord Jesus, for he has given us his all. Although a tithe of his possessions, I love this, although a tithe of his possessions would have made a universe of angels rich beyond all thought, yet he was not content until he had given us all that he had. It would have been surprising grace if he had allowed us to eat the crumbs of his abundance beneath the table of his mercy. But he will do nothing by half measures. He makes us sit with him and share the feast If he had given us some small donation from his royal treasure, we would have had cause to love him eternally. But in fact, he wants his bride to be as rich as himself. What? And he will not have a glory or a grace in which she will not share. He has not been content with less than making us joint heirs with himself so that we might have equal possessions. He has emptied all his riches into the members of the church and has shared everything with his redeemed. There is not one room in his house, the key of which he will keep from his people. He gives them complete freedom to take all that he has to enjoy as their own. He loves to see them enjoy his treasure and take as much as they can possibly carry. The limitless fullness of his all-sufficiency is as free to the believer as the air he breathes. Christ has put the cup of his love and grace to the believer's lips. Remember that in a few minutes when we drink together. Christ has put the cup of his love and grace to the believer's lip and invites him to drink of it forever. If he could empty it, he is welcome to do so, but as he cannot exhaust it, he is invited to drink abundantly, for it is all his own. What truer proof of fellowship can heaven or earth provide? So giving is about the giving of God. It's about the grace of God. Giving, our giving, is this little tiny G reflex to the big capital G giving of God in Christ. We give because he first gave to us. Ours is just reflex response giving. So excelling in the grace of giving means that you've richly, it's not that we look down our nose and judge somebody else. (laughs) 
judge their lifestyle. No. If you're excelling in the grace of giving, it's because you are blown away with all that God has done for you. And you've got your eyes fixed on Jesus and his grace. So do you believe that? I believe, help my unbelief. Anybody feeling like that? So if so, then we're ready for some how, how to. And that's where he goes from here. I'm going to just hit this really quick. You can kind of think about it some more later. I just think it's a beautiful example that Paul's just really careful with money. He's transparent and open, and we seek to be the same way here. So there's just some wise realism that he gives to guide their given the Corinthians, and there's application for us as well. So verse 12 to 23. We'll just run through it quick, and then we'll get to the table and and eat and drink, reminding ourselves of how rich his grace is toward us in Christ. So, for if if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. What's going on there? Well, he first wrote back in 1 Corinthians 16 to get the stuff ready. Well, some of those people bought the lies of the false apostles and were paying for those guys. So they've got less than they would have before. And they could probably be like, oh no, I was planning on giving this much and maybe Paul's probably, oh, oh. like, hey, it's according to what you've got, not according to what you don't have. It goes up and down, ebb and flow, seasons of life, kids and college and what, like, okay, stuff happens, medical bills. For if the readiness of, is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. Don't read the Macedonian thing wrong. I'm not telling you, like, if you're really spiritual, then you'll totally make yourselves miserable. No, he's just saying, look at how the grace of God was at work in these Macedonians. But listen, don't take me wrong. I'm actually not looking for you to be burdened. That's so realistic. But that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. If, if that opportunity comes, that need arises. As it is written, this is beautiful. You, we could spend a lot of time right here. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. What's that from? Where's that come from? Exodus with the manna. Everybody had enough. So just as God provided after the first exodus, God's going to provide after the greater exodus as we walk through the wilderness of this world, through the peaks and the valleys, all the way home. We can trust him. There's grace for this. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's he's going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Don't we wish we knew who that was? We don't know. Sorry. Um, But he's just talking about the reputation of the people that are going to come and take this gift. Because the point is, you can trust them. We're not trying to line our pockets. And we're going to be really transparent and clear, and we care about the reputation of these people so that you can have confidence that you can send that gift and not think it's going to never get there. 
And not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry this act of grace once again. It's an act of grace that's being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us. He wants to be blame, blameless in the eyes of God and blameless in the eyes of people. Sending another brother who is tested, found earnest in many matters. Again, just good reputation. They trust Titus. He's already been there. And these messengers down in verse 23, they are the glory of Christ. <laughs> It's great. They're cruciform ministers. They're loving people like Jesus. They shine with his light. Which brings us back again to the most important point as we transition to participate in the table here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sake, for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ takes our spiritual bankruptcy and makes us rich which makes us givers of grace. We have plenty to spare because we are rich in Christ, and we are willing to impoverish ourselves to enrich others. Giving is about the grace of God, and giving is the reflex to the giving of God in Christ. We give because he first gave to us, so as we approach the table, let's examine our hearts. Don't you want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, be the glory of Christ on earth, the light of Christ, the generosity of Christ kind of radiating from your life, my life. So if you've been living selfish and self-serving, if you've been complaining or jealous or angry, treating God as if he's stingy, then let's examine our hearts, confess, repent, and let's go get some more grace from the infinite gold mine of grace that's ours in Christ and we will be filled up and we can walk out ready to be generous, to give because he first gave to us. So if the men who are going to serve could come on up, we're going to pray and then we will participate in the table. So this table is for believers. So if you're trusting in Jesus, you're a baptized believer, you're following Jesus, even if you're from another church and you're visiting, you're welcome to participate with us in the table. Um, if you're not a believer, we're glad that you're here. Just let the elements pass. There's no shame in that. Um, but if you want to talk to somebody about what it means to trust in Jesus and follow him, I'd be sure happy to talk to you. Any of these guys up here would be happy to as well. So let's pray here briefly, and then we will... Distribute the elements, just hold the, the bread and the cup until everyone's served, and then we'll participate together. Oh God, we praise you and thank you for your just unbelievably generous kindness and mercy and grace toward us in Christ. Please, we need to know it. We need to know it more. Would you just banish any thought that you are stingy? And would you open our eyes to see the boundless generosity that you have shown us through Christ. Help us to just ponder it and, and drink it in and chew on it as we sit at the table that is set for us by the work of Christ, the, the death of Christ, making it possible for all of these great promises, all of this grace to be, to be ours. 
So help us to celebrate it and thank you for it as we participate in it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.